Welcome back to another episode of the Next Level Minds podcast. My name is Chris Chapman, and I am your host. For those of you who are tuning in for the first time, then this is a podcast dedicated to those who want to reach a next level in their business, personal, or career life. Every other week, I'm blessed to sit down with the fully qualified guest, entrepreneur, content creator, or mover and shaker in their industry, and really walk through their story of how they have gotten from point A to point B and overcame various adversities along the way. So before we get into today's episode, I just wanted to go ahead and reiterate my main goal, which is to impact over 1 million people by helping them reach a next level in their business, personal, or career life. So if you have not done this already, please take the time to subscribe to Next Level Minds on Apple Podcasts and share this episode with a family member, friend, or colleague. And if you're really feeling special, definitely leave a review of what you think of the Next Level Minds podcast. We're at 82 reviews right now. Would love to get to 100. So thank you everyone who has been making those. Now on to today's episode and guest. I'm sitting down with Dom Einhorn, who is a serial entrepreneur with multiple startup exits under his belt. He's also a French native who speaks six languages, definitely understands the importance of breaking down language barriers. He also is the founder of the Startup Super Cup, which is a leading tech conference, which really integrates and introduces and collaborates a lot of tech entrepreneurs, angel investors, venture capitalists, all in one conference. Other than that, he also is the president of a semi-professional rugby team in France. So definitely some exciting stuff there. We're going to be chatting a lot about startups, technology, general business. So if you're into those areas, for sure, keep listening today. Other than that, as we like to say here, your mindset is your greatest weapon for the battle of success. Hey, Dom, thanks for uh, taking the time to sit down on the Next Level Minds podcast. Thanks for having me, Chris. Yeah, absolutely. How's uh, Southwest France treating you today? You know, it's interesting because uh, we're in a small town of roughly 9,000 souls in the winter and two and a half million tourists in the summer, but mm -hmm. uh, no tourism right now. So almost like a dead zone. Uh, we're not accustomed to seeing that. Mm-hmm. Well, hopefully, if you guys can get out, maybe the traffic's a little bit lighter because not as many tourists are going. So One of the reasons why I left LA for the south of France in the first place. <laughs> That's funny. Well, I, I definitely want to start off today with a fun question. So obviously, looking at your background a little bit, you know, I saw that you were the president of a semi-pro rugby team, uh, and I know you have a lot of history with the sports. So with that said, do you have a favorite game that you've either, either watched of rugby or played of rugby kind of throughout your experience there? You know, I didn't, I didn't grow up a rugby player. I was a prize fighter, actually. But, uh, you know, both of them are contact sports. Uh, but I, I grew up following very closely the French national team in the 70s and seeing a bunch of bloody faces and uh, guys just playing all the way through it, you know, like it never even happened with a smile on their face. So I was always intrigued by that. And uh, inside of Unicorn, I have seven professional rugby players that also work for us here. Mm. And the interesting thing with them is there's one guy in particular who's a big Georgian prop. If I don't slap him over the head at least once a day, he thinks there's something wrong with me. 
He said, hey, come on. We, I, I'm, I'm used to this type of pain. What are you doing here? I think something in a bad mood or something. And I said, look, <laughs> uh, his name is Dato. He said, look, Dato, you know, social distancing here. You know, I can't, I can't really do it right now. But by the time social distancing is over, trust me, I'll hit you with the head again. Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> I, I have a lot of friends who are rugby players, you know, that used to play in the States just in, in high school and college. And just the toughness of some of these guys is, is crazy. I mean, I grew up playing soccer and we're notorious for just a slide tackle faking an injury. So just watching rugby is entirely. That's right. That's right. For those, for those people who do, usually don't know what rugby is, I usually tell them, think uh, football, American football without the pads. Mm-hmm. Totally agree. And and it's just continuous playing, too. I mean, it's not play, stop, play, stop. Oh, for play. sure. Yeah. yeah. No, no, no commercial breaks. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, so want to touch on your background a little bit. You know, I listened to a podcast you were on prepping for this one, and I heard you mention in your childhood that you were, you know, a pretty avid reader and learned a lot of different languages. So kind of with that context, I'd love if you could just elaborate on your childhood a little bit and how growing up was like for you. Yeah, sure. I grew up in the nor- northeast of France. Uh, I'm Alsatian, which basically means I'm half French, half German. Uh, grew up uh, exposed to multiple languages at the dinner table, addressing uh, different people about the same topic in a different language. So makes it easy for multitasking later on. Uh, avid reader, without a doubt. You know, I had a strong mentor, my maternal grandmother, who taught me to read. I think I was two or three years old, and by the time I was four or five, that's all I would do is I would just devour books, and in particular. Americanized uh, name is Jules Verne, Jules Verne in French, uh, we, who for me was a second mentor because he taught me that pretty much anything was possible. You know, it all started with vision. And in fact, if you look at 20,000 Leagues Under the Seas, uh, as an example, or Voyage to the Center of the Universe, uh, you know, he, he was the, you know, the real inventor of uh, submarines, moon rockets, uh, nanotechnology was describing robots that were actually scouring our bloodstream, right? So if you fast forward 150 years, you know, he's been prescient on a lot of those topics. And I think for, you know, entrepreneurs, at least what it did for me is it taught me that, look, if you set your mind to actually doing something and also fascinated by tech at an early age, you can actually achieve it. And he's proven it. Mm. So he was already thinking about some of the things that Elon Musk maybe is doing, but 150 years ago? No question. No question. Wow. I mean, you can read the whole works of, uh, of Jules Verne and you'll be absolutely amazed if you put it back into context uh, and you compare it to what's going on today. Uh, absolutely amazing stuff. So with the, the visualization, is that more of visualizing your success of where you want to be in one, three, five years down the road, or is that more visualization of being like a true visionary like elon musk space travel things like that i think for as far as he's concerned definitely more of a true visionary uh, uh obviously primarily a, a writer right a fiction writer but knowing that uh, these things would actually you know occur at some point in time in the future and describing him with relative accuracy already drawing up blueprints as part of his writings uh, some pretty amazing stuff right so basically engineering backing up a literary work, which for a lot of people, and I think I read at some point in time, a few years back, something about Elon Musk, that he also felt inspired by Jules Verne, and he read it not as early as I did, but in his teens, he came across the books. In France, growing up in France, obviously, that's one of the, uh, the, the major writers that you do grow up with, and uh, I think also as a result, because you have no choice but to read Jules Verne when you're going through your early curriculum, uh, probably also explains why there are so many great, uh, talented engineers. Mm, totally agree. Totally agree. That's so interesting how 
your childhood, the choices you make, the books you read really just shapes who you are in the future. I just think that's a really interesting concept. No question. I mean, same thing for mentors, right? So, mm. I mean, one, one of the core, th- you know, the core elements of the entrepreneurial DNA, you know, talking grit, resilience, discipline. I mean, those were all instilled in me by my grandmother, who was a World War II veteran and uh, mm. resistant, right, in, in France. Uh, in the spring of 1944, she, she had in her, in her house, there were, I don't know, eight, nine, ten GIs living. You know, at that point in time, you get caught, summary execution, right? So I grew up with that, you know, with that lore, you know, with some uh, GI helmets in my grandma's house, uh, some old cigarette stubs, that, you know, from 60, 70 years ago, <laughs> things of wow. that nature, right? So that that tends to mark you for the long run. Oh, yeah, totally agree. So fast forward a little bit, obviously, you had your childhood and that kind of shaped who you are today, but... I know. I think. I think you mentioned in another podcast that you moved to the states in what 1993. That's correct. Yeah, March 1993. Uh, left the U.S. to start a digital marketing company uh, in the U.S. At first, I was in Las Vegas because uh, I, I had some prize fighting days. So I had my strength, which was living there. So I had a contact in Las Vegas, mm. and then probably about 18 months later, Los Angeles, where I stayed for uh, roughly 25 years. Uh, it, it, immediately jumped head into digital marketing in a time where uh, the only search engine was actually a directory called Yahoo. Prior mm. to the search engines, we called it the information superhighway, not the internet between 1993 and 1994 and a half. Only with the event of uh, <clears throat> Netscape 1.0, did we start calling it the internet because for the first time you actually had a browser to explore the early internet, which was obviously very poor. There was hardly any content there at that time. Mm. <clears throat> And then very quickly in the mid to late 90s, we started focusing on, on uh, scalable customer acquisition, uh, you know, lead generation and customer acquisition, in particular in the financial services industry, as well as in the travel industry. So late 90s, early 2000s, every major travel company was a client of ours. Uh, we were driving traffic and focusing on, uh, again, customer acquisition strategies, which to a certain degree we're still doing today, <clears throat> 25 years later, and primarily in the mobile space today. The other, the other core, uh, core change that I've experienced is I started out as a startup entrepreneur in my early years and uh, still to a certain degree am because I'm obviously assisting a number of early stage startups by incubating and accelerating them. But over the last six, seven, eight years, I've morphed mo- mostly into an angel investor. Mm. I've also built a network of angel investors with me uh, that tend to follow me, but uh, in most deals that we bring under our umbrella, I'm usually first money in or part of the funding of the funding team, the initial funding team. Uh, it's kind of like showing you know, the rest of the world that we get a lot of skin in the game and that our own cash is on the line. Hmm. So I want to back up a little bit on that story because um, obviously you're very well versed in angel investing, startup incubators, technology in general. But when you moved to the States, I mean, was it just by yourself with a couple bucks in your pocket or kind of what, what was that like? $256. I remember that. Wow. maybe if I got a couple of quarters. Yes. So, uh, and I intended to stay for two weeks at first, uh, and, uh, two weeks quickly turned into eight years before I came back. Uh, but yeah, so I guess, you know, you, you, you make a move, you know, you, we don't call it the moonshot for no reason. Right. <laughs> So I think if you're a bona fide entrepreneur, if you're looking to do what it takes, and I would probably stress this on, on, on any podcast, including yours, is that let's be clear, 
uh, after 28 years in the business, I can tell you with certainty that not everyone is cut out to be an entrepreneur. And there's nothing wrong with it, right? So uh, I believe that roughly 5% of the people I encounter who actually want to start a business uh, in the tech space is actually cut out for it, hmm. right? And I, I wouldn't put it any higher. And again, there's absolutely nothing wrong, but you have to ask yourself, am I willing to take that risk? Am I willing to put up with a number of failures, some of which can be extremely painful? Am I willing to put up with the fact that I may lose some friends, some, some even family in some cases in extreme measures? And I'm willing to overcome all of those obstacles that will show up and that will be in front of me. If the answer is unequivocally yes, if you're hesitating, it already means no. Mm. Right, because you're gonna at some point in time throw in the towel, or you're gonna think it's just too painful, and you're gonna give up. Uh, and every once in a while, you cross paths with uh, some individuals where I can just say, after half an hour discussion, this guy is it. Right? I know I can bet on this guy. This is a horse I want to bet on, or this is a team I want to bet on. Because even if you are not that person, if you intend to launch or start a business, and you intend to obviously at some point in time succeed. It requires scalability and the, the willingness to scale. Otherwise, become a, stay a solo entrepreneur, become a freelancer, nothing wrong with that. You can have a great little business like that. But if you really want to have an impact, you have to very early on think about which team you're going to build around you. Mm-hmm. If you're not that high grit, high discipline, high energy guy, you need to have one of those guys on your team. You know, You need a locomotive. You need a good balance between EQ and IQ, right? Uh, And usually what I say is I'd much rather take high EQ and moderate IQ versus the other way around, Mm. okay? And on the same level, I'd much rather take a decent idea with amazing execution versus an amazing idea with okay execution, right? The former will always outperform the latter over a longer period of time. Hmm. And then the other thing is, you know, the, my own theory about failure, depending on which culture, uh, not the U.S. because failure is readily accepted in most places in the U.S., but there are other cultures, uh, including the French culture, where failure is ostracized, frowned upon, right? Uh, and that's unfortunate because if you want to be successful, you have to fail. Hmm. You have to fail quickly. You have to fail efficiently. The worst failure you're going to experience is the one you don't realize you're experiencing. Hmm. So in my opinion, and my track record is proof of it, a failure is nothing but a stepping stone to success. Right. So one of the famous quotes was uh, Thomas Edison when he was asked why he succeeded where so other, many, so other people have failed. His answer was I finally ran out of things that didn't work. <laughs> which translated means, you know, I had so many failures, I ran out of them. I had no choice but to succeed, right? Uh, in my own experience, when I first went to the U.S., I started selling websites in a time when it was like selling ice to Eskimos. People didn't even know what a website was, right? So I came up with my own rule, the rule of a 36 over one. And basically what that means is I had to actually make 36 direct contacts over the phone before I would sell one website. I actually physically spoke to 36 people, which means that I failed 35 times in a row on average before getting to that sale. And ultimately, I sold the company for seven figures, right? But again, 
if you're not willing to actually do that, because in the beginning, I think the first time before I actually made my first sale, I think I made 180 or 200 calls, right? Blanks, 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 blanks. But once you actually get that, and once you understand it's just pure math, it's just pure metrics, you can't wait until you get to that 36 call because on average, you're gonna make a new sale. So it makes it very easy. And you're actually starting to embrace failure versus fear failure. And that's very important. You have to welcome failure with open arms. It's like staring down the skeleton in the closet. You know, If you're afraid of a skeleton, you're never going to graduate from that point. But if you say, hey, you open up the door, open, you know, skeleton, I can see you. I'm not afraid of you. I'm going to stay here until you walk away. And that's what it is. That's what you have to overcome. And again, the people that I bring in, I see it all the time. A lot of them actually have that fear. So a lot of mentoring comes in and saying, look, this is what happens. I've been there. I've done that. And usually what I tell young entrepreneurs is, look, I don't have a crystal ball. Nobody does. I cannot tell you with certainty what will happen or what you should be doing. However, I can tell you with almost certainty what it is that you should not be doing because I've done it and I've failed. There's no point you repeating that failure, right? So look at it in hindsight, you know, take my experience as your hindsight and act accordingly. Yeah, I totally agree. I love, I love what you mentioned, Dom, about the, the math that you did, the 36 to one, because I think that's really cool because each failure, meaning, a person saying no on the phone is like, all right, I'm getting closer. I'm getting closer to that. Yes. Um, and I like also, I mean, a good point that I like to bring up about failure, especially for the younger entrepreneurs out there is like, think about it as a long-term game. I mean, if you're failing a lot in your early twenties, you have 40 years to keep growing and building your business or career, whatever the case may be there. So I really like, especially all the things you mentioned about failure um, and really just embracing. I think that's really hard to do in uh, in today's time, though, especially with the comparison with social media and all that as well. 100%. I mean, I'm not saying it's easy, right? And yeah. that's also why a small, tiny percentage of the population is cut out for it. Mm. With Within that small percentage, I think you mentioned 5% of the individuals you talk to that you're like, all right, this is the horse that I want to invest in here. And you touched on the traits a little bit, you know, about grit, high energy. If you don't have some of those traits surrounding yourself with a team, what are some of those traits that you really like to see in, uh, in some of these entrepreneurs that you like to invest in? I'm going to start with the traits I don't like to see. Okay. If you don't, if you don't mind. Yeah, go ahead. So I don't like to see as much as I like to see confidence. I don't like to see unwarranted overconfidence. Mm. And I would say 50% of the pitches that come across my desk come from someone who's just cocky. That's, a, that's obviously a term I pick because that's you know what it represents. Or what I mean by that is that they come to me and say, okay, there's nothing like our product or our service on the market. It's a $100 billion market, and within three years, we're going to grab a 5% market share, right? And don't doubt me, whatever you do, right? If you look, okay, it's okay, prove it to me, right? And then it gets challenging, it gets challenging, and they become defensive. Or very often what you see is they knock the competition, major, major turnoff right? Because if no one actually addresses your market efficiently, what tells me that there actually is a market that, that you know, there's something there that needs to be addressed. So there's some major faux pas that I see uh, by something like this, because as an investor, what I want to hear is I want to hear that you thought about all facets, including failure. Because hmm. if you absolutely tell me that there's no chance you can fail, I'm already turned off because it's just not the case, right? So be honest, be authentic, or at least try to be. There's nothing wrong with being absolutely 
positive that you're going to succeed. I actually like that, but it at least proved to me that actually you have thought about the potential of failure mm. and that you have a contingency plan, right? The smartest entrepreneurs that come to us to have a plan A, they have a plan B, a plan C, a plan D, and sometimes beyond, right? So at least show some mental fortitude that you've actually been able to, to visualize what will happen if this and this and this happens, because I've not seen a single deal including my own, where we didn't have to pivot sometimes multiple times in order mm-hmm. to get to the finish line, right? So that's what I don't like to see. What I do like to see is a person who is headstrong, has a track record of discipline. Uh, we talked about rugby players, but I would say any sports at a certain level, they know what, it, what the pain feels like. They had to get back up, right? Uh, you know, guys to get up at, like I used to when I was in the, in, in the sports circuit at 3.45 a.m., right? And uh, my second workout, workout was at 7.30 a.m., right? Because that shows me, to me that you were actually ready and willing to do this. Former military guys usually have the same mm. kind of grit and discipline. And again, if, if, you're, if you're alone, that's what I want to see. If you are part of a team and you already have a founding team of two or three co-founders, I want to see at least one guy like that. Mm-hmm. I want to see locomotive, right? Good combo of IQ, EQ, uh, where you may have a PhD scientist as the main engineer, and you also have a gritty, hustling sales guy on the other side, because let's not forget one thing. Unless you make a sale, nothing happens, right? And I think another big difference between what I, if I think back with, you know, 25, 28 years ago when I started in the business versus today, one example, in March 1998, I looked at the bill because I still have it. Uh, my my uh, bandwidth bill was 8,000 US, 8,000 dollars US, and I was using 800 times less bandwidth than today, and today I'm almost paying zero. Hmm. Between 99 and 2001, if you wanted to launch a, an e-commerce website, which was a novelty at that time, you needed an Oracle server license, which would set you back $32,000 per instance. Right, all of the all this free today, right? So what has happened is that the entire process of creating a tech business has become vastly democratized and demonetized. Mm. But at the same time, because of the this process of demonetization, democratization, everyone can become your competitor. You know, we can all launch a business today. A hackathon at the perfect example. Mm. Give give the hack give them 48 hours to come up with a solution to a problem and it works, right? It's been proven over and over and over. So because it's so easy, everybody becomes your competitor. So you have to now stand out from the crowd, number one. Number two, what we're seeing is a lot of vanity businesses that are being launched because someone has has a passion, but those businesses don't necessarily respond to demand and need in the marketplace, Mm -hmm. right? And obviously that's not sustainable long, long term, right? So as something I always stress, look, if you really want to launch a business or if you already have launched a business, ask yourself some fundamental questions such as what problem am I solving or what problem do I intend to solve with the product or service that I'm about to launch or that I already have launched? And here's a great test to make sure that you don't waste your time, your money, et cetera, et cetera. It's what we do internally. When we decide to launch a new product or a service, we first, before we even do an MVP, 
before we even have a beta version of the product, is we actually put together some great sizzle marketing material, emphasizing the problem it will solve for some of our existing clients. And we go out there and we actually physically sell it, pre-sell it to our clients prior to actually developing it. If you can do that, then you know you're onto something big. You should be able to at least pre-sell the concept, get a down payment towards a future, toward a future product. Because if you get that down payment, it proves to you that the pain point is there and that the client is willing to part cash even though it doesn't exist yet. Mm-hmm. Then you have a very compelling value proposition. It's an amazing test, and that's the only th- the only way we work these days with new products and services. I love that test, by the way, because I think that can really show if the, if the product or service has a product market fit because you know, people are buying, it, buying into the vision, if you will. Also buying into the founder because the, the product or service isn't even live yet. So I think that's showing something as well. Um, and I really like the point that you made there, Dom, just about knocking competition. I know you mentioned that a few minutes back, but I think that can kind of set you back a little bit if you knock the competition. I think it's, I think it's okay to say, Hey, yeah, they're great. They do this, they do this, but here's what we do that they don't do. Here's the solution that we saw. Yeah. So. I mean, you know, I, I had that discussion last, last week with a, an NQB of ours. I like a lot, but it kind of turned me off when you mentioned that, look, this, this app, major competitor in the space, right? They don't have this and they don't have this is this, you know, like we're just going to bypass them, et cetera. I said, look, if they don't have anything, how do you explain it's been downloaded 25 million times, <laughs> right? Whereas yours, we're just getting started. You know, we have 5,000 downloads for the app, right? So even you're the specialist in the field, even if you don't see any value to it, clearly there are 25 other million people that, that see value or at least enough to have downloaded it. Mm-hmm. They didn't really know how to respond to that one. Yeah. What, okay, so you mentioned the whole team aspect. If you're, you know, if you do have... Sorry, if you don't have the traits that you mentioned, it's important to surround yourself with the team. I mean, let's say there's someone out there that has the technical skill sets, but is not that gritty salesman, salesman like you mentioned. What are some steps maybe that they can do if just from starting from scratch to build out a team? You know, you always want to look for like-minded people that at the same time challenge you, right? Mm-hmm. Because the last person that I need is someone taps you on the shoulder, say, good job, right? That's not going to move me forward. So... You have no choice but to build a team if you want to scale. That's clear, right? Mm-hmm. So again, if I'm building a team, I'm building a puzzle. And the last person I need on the puzzle is another me because there's no way I can place it on the board. In the meantime, I have a gaping hole left and right, maybe sales, marketing, maybe accounting, finance, or maybe engineering. So if you grew up an engineer and you all, all your buddies are engineers, you have to break through. You have to actually put yourself out there LinkedIn is a great way, right? Mm. Because you can kind of like zero in, uh, laser, laser target anyone you want, you know, based on any keyword, especially if you LinkedIn pro account, I would certainly encourage that. Or, you know, go on some boards, you know, there's a lot of them online and just put, put some feelers out, you know, pitch your project, let people know, uh, you know, what, what you're looking for. And sometimes, even though most engineers are not great communicators, uh, you know, maybe you have a sister, maybe you have a cousin, or maybe hire a freelancer that can actually get, uh, you know, verbally, you know, communicate what it is you're looking for, right? And you'll definitely find that person because you need that person. 
Mm-hmm. Totally. It's a whole yin and yang approach there. I think is super important. So can you, um, you're touching on the incubator a little bit. Could you kind of break that down a little bit to the listeners who don't really know what an incubator was? I, I heard you say an example in another podcast I listened to with you about like comparing premature babies and how that relates to Yeah. So could you break that down a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. So everybody knows what a hospital incubator looks like. We've all seen them, right? Either in person or on TV. And if you have a, you know, premature baby that's born, you know, the baby is weak and needs to be nursed to good health. Usually make sure that there's survivability. Uh, it's a very much the same concept, what you do in, uh, during a, in an incubator during the early stage of a, of a startup. You want to make sure that, number one, to survive, giving them the right types of resources, surrounding them with skill sets. In our case, that could be legal, could be accounting, could be graphic design, could be engineering, could be sales and marketing, or all of the above, depending on their respective strengths and weaknesses. Uh, and ultimately, you know, uh, I think I have my card here, you know, you see in the bottom, right? Crawl, walk, run. Oh, Those are cool. the different stages, right? So you crawl in the incubation stage, you walk in the acceleration stage, and ultimately you thrive and you run once you're out of there, out of that stage. And those are the, you know, the steps because we, we tend to work with, we don't do pre-incubation, right? We do incubation, which means that the companies come to us, they have at least a proof of concept. They have a product or service that is marketable. Uh, if they raise money, usually they, they come to us and they have to prove at least that their grandmother bought into the deal. They've been able to convince grandma, <laughs> trust them with a few bucks. Uh, you know, in, in the mobile apps, let's say you, could, you have a B2C mobile app, you would typically have 1,000 to 5,000 downloads on your own. You affect, you've shown that you actually can get a little bit of traction on your own. And then we handle the rest. We put the emphasis on it. We've taken, for example, mobile apps from that stage from 500 to a million downloads within six to, six to 10 months. We've done this multiple times over. Uh, we are in the number one position in the app store for over 5,000 keywords uh, on an industry and on a language agnostic basis. In some industries, we do ASO, app store optimization in 17 different languages. Uh, you know, we have uh, 30 people inside of Unicorn from 18 different countries, mm. um, mostly female, which is actually uh, a rarity. And nobody had to tell us that we needed to do that, which I think if they had told us, we wouldn't be where we are today, right? Because mm. nobody likes to be told what they should be doing, how they should be hiring. I think if you just hire the right way, it just happens, you know, you may have some more, more males versus females, vice versa, whatever happens, whatever works for you, right? I don't think anybody should be told what it is they should be doing. Right? Hire this person, hire this. Quote us. We all know how good that works, right? We've seen oh. it. In, <laughs> don't yeah. drink too much water. Don't drink too little, right? Okay, you know. Okay, you do whatever you want. I do whatever I want. <laughs> yeah, that's really true. Um, yeah, I just like that example about the the, the premature babies because you're taking that startup from helping it survive, scaling it to the next level. Do you ever have anyone that tries to to skip the uh, accelerate phrase and go from like crawl to run? If so, like how do you kind of mitigate oh, that man. challenge? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you know, it goes back to the type. I'm not sure how it defined that type, but uh, I described earlier that people are just saying they can skip, you know, you can jump from A to Z without, you know, checking B, C, D, E, mm-hmm. right? You definitely see that. Uh, I, we try to, you know, get rid of these people before they even integrate. 
because it just doesn't work unless you can just prove to me, look, uh, you know, I'm more than willing to hear you out. If you can prove to me uh, that you can, you can do that quickly and efficiently without losing your integrity, your authenticity, you know, but that's going to be very, very rare. I think if you take one example, uh, probably 10 years ago already when Groupon first started, right, they could have probably done that, right? And even then, you know, obviously customer service sucked and today you don't even hear about the Groupon anymore, right? Uh, I remember everybody getting all gung-ho and then when, uh, you know, when I first started ordering stuff on Groupon, because I spent a lot of time in the US, in France and Germany and I had different Groupon accounts, product wouldn't show up. Sometimes mm-hmm. two months would go by, I, I send an email, I don't hear anything back. I'm still waiting on some of those, uh, some of those emails, right? They, tr- they, they definitely burned some of the stages. They certainly, unlike Amazon, didn't put the customer first. They put the product first, right? And they just try to grow and scale too fast. And they burned a lot of bridges along the way. And today they're paying the price for it. Yeah. And I think that just goes back to the importance of putting the customer first, no matter how big you get. Yeah. On, on that note, uh, also, I think for, for those of you young entrepreneurs who actually are trying to like, figure out what's the next big thing, that's also, in my, in my opinion, a dangerous, trend chasing is a dangerous thing hmm. because we don't have a crystal ball. The trend may be, you, you know, the, the false term is the trend is your friend. Well, you can also be a fan, not your, not your friend, right? It's a very, very interesting thing to do. Predicting the future, if you look at what we're, we're generating now, almost February, if you're looking at the predictions that most economists you know, came up with last month and you compare them to what actually will happen by December of next year, you're going to be in for a rude awakening, right? I think top, top 100 economists last year, whatever they predicted, without even considering COVID, 92% of them were wrong, right? Yeah. So as an entrepreneur, try to focus on what does not change versus what changes, okay? What I mean by that is we're all going to wake up tomorrow we're going to take a shower. We're going to brush our teeth. We're going to eat something. Uh, we're going to put some clothes on. Uh, and then we're going to buy stuff, right? If you look at Amazon, for example. What Jeff Bezos said many years ago already is that he focuses primarily on what does not change versus what changes. Mm-hmm. And he just tries to bring these customers a better experience, right? People want more efficiency. They want less friction. They want to buy a price that's reasonable. They want quick delivery. I mean, if we compare, for example, uh, Blockbuster versus Netflix, and we all know Blockbuster, sorry, almost almost cursed there. Uh, (laughs) Blockbuster, that was a Freudian slip if there ever was one. Yeah, because I experienced the pain, right? So for those of you who are old enough, you know, Blockbuster, we used to call it Block with an F, in those days, because yeah. <laughs> if, if, if you wanted to return, if you return your tape late, at one point in time, I paid a $48 late fee for tape that was worth five bucks. Thank you very much for insulting me. I've been renting from your store for eight, nine, 10 years, right? But you see how bad that is. And you know what basically Netflix did is they actually focused on an existing trend, not a new one. Hmm. People are consuming content, in this case, video content, and they just brought a much better experience. Initially via mail order, by basically shipping two or three DVDs, as long as you would return one, they'll ship you a new one, right? And later on streaming, 
but they didn't try to figure out how will people behave 25 years from now. That's a major, major gamble. You could be completely off, completely wrong. And it's also a major financial risk, right? But if you focus again on you know, friction points, stuff that irritates people, right? We can all come up with 100 of those probably every single day, and you bring a better experience, there's tremendous value there for the consumer, and the consumer is always willing to pay to get rid of that friction. Mm, I love that. Just focus on the stuff that, yeah, people find inconvenient and build a solution. That's what a business is, a solution to problems and, and streamline it from there. Without a doubt. Yeah, that's really cool. And, and the whole Blockbuster Netflix, like we could talk about that for hours because they really just missed the boat there. And yeah, I, I've been fined as well for like a $5 DVD or, or something just for being, you know, a couple of weeks late. So definitely. I think, the, I think the offer on the table was for, they could have bought them out for 8 million. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. And they've definitely missed that, missed out there. Um, let's go back to something you mentioned. You mentioned that, uh, ideas are overvalued and execution is really what should be the most important thing. And I think you also mentioned like you'd rather have a not as great idea, but full execution versus an amazing idea versus little execution. So could you kind of elaborate on that? Yeah. Uh, I think we've all seen it, right? You know, usually what you get, and you've all heard it as well, you get someone that comes to you, I have this amazing idea. Uh, and they all tend to overvalue what that idea is worth, right? They try to chase after intellectual property rights, mm. registering patents, et cetera, et cetera. You know, look at the US patent office, look at how many actually are worth anything, right? Uh, and by the time you actually register that patent and a few years go by, your idea is already worthless, right? So time to market being a lot more critical than trying in today's world, you know, to actually protect your intellectual property rights if you have even have any that are defensible, right? So execution is absolutely key in any entrepreneurial venture, right? No matter how small, if you're a freelancer, you need to execute upon a premise. If you're a graphic designer and someone hires you off on, on Upwork, on Fiverr, or wherever the heck it is, they're expecting quality execution based upon the price they're going to be willing to pay, right? Uh, so if you look at just the pure financial flow of what people are willing to pay for it in a B2C or in a B2B environment, Nobody pays for ideas, mm -hmm. right? I mean, you have the old invention hotline where they give you a hundred bucks for an idea, right? And ultimately, or they may take it away and may, may or may not turn it into a, a, billion, a billion dollar concept, right? But execution where the real value is being created. So you can, for example, help people with great ideas and try to strike a, to strike a deal. First of all, validate them. A lot of them you cannot validate. Uh, in most cases, people think they have a great idea. It's not actually not so great by the time you drill down. Or then another thing that I see, a big fallacy that I see, is people that believe that no one besides them has ever thought of what they just thought of. Mm. Right? And actually go a step beyond that. Every week, we see projects where a team decides to venture on and build something. I'm like, knock, 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 guys. Here check your WhatsApp or just sent you a link. It's already been built, right? And because they're so idea-driven, they believe, oh my God, we came up with this great concept, didn't validate it, didn't do thorough research, it's already been fully built out, right? That's already on the market. Or then the other thing, the big fallacy, is that no one has is thinking about the same thing while we're thinking about it and maybe already multiple steps ahead. Trust mm -hmm. me, they are. 
it's definitely happening, right? So you're much better off focusing on execution of an existing idea than coming up with a new idea, right? Or if you absolutely come up with a new idea, think of it more like a concept, right? The concept is several stages ahead of the idea. Hmm. What I mean by concept is that you actually, instead of just coming up with a brain fart, you actually have thought the process through of what that idea would actually do once you've iterated it, uh, you've looked at it almost like an out-of-body experience, right? What can go wrong here? What can go wrong here? Like an engineer would and how it's applicable to certain use cases, Hmm. right? So example, right? People fall off of chairs, right? Maybe you can come up with not an idea, but a concept that would make it impossible for people to fall off of a chair or for elderly people who walk down the staircase so they don't fall, right? The idea, for example, would be, oh, I have an idea. I'm going to launch a business, a concept that will make that impossible. The elderly person walks down the stairs and falls. Okay, great idea. I sign off on that, okay? But how are you going to execute upon that premise? So the concept would actually take that and think of a device very much like Jules Verne, right? That's where the visionary comes in, who realized I'm on Earth, I want to go to the moon, and probably the easiest way would be to go there via a rocket, right? A hundred years before the JFK speech, right? Hmm. He actually thought that and actually devised a blueprint on what that rocket would look like and how it would travel from point A to point B. If you can do that, then you're on to something then you are much more of a visionary. And that's where the concept comes in. Mm, I love that. I love what you mentioned about just the importance of the concept. I think I fall into that trap sometimes too, just from the excitement of an idea of not breaking down the concept. And I think, as you mentioned, that can be kind of a dangerous slope to go down because then the execution never really gets done properly. I, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, hence the term, he stole my idea. <laughs> yeah, <Right? laughs> and you turned it into a billion dollar company right? yeah it's like you could have easily done the same thing you know that's right um so we were touching about like blockbuster netflix amazon along those lines that's obviously very tech driven you know i'd love just your opinion on what you think the future of technology and startups is going to kind of be like in the future because it's already pretty progressed right now oh for sure number one it's accelerating at an ever faster pace that's clear. That's proven. Uh, number two, I think we're in for a wild ride with the merger of certain technologies, in particular 5G, AI, and AI, AR, VR that are mm. becoming one, one technology, one monster technology. And I think that for those of you who have heard of the singularity, the merger of human biology and technology, uh, it definitely will happen within the next 10 to 15 years. And we'll have some, you know, today we're talking about privacy issues, but we're going to have some more fundamental questions to ask ourselves very, very soon here. And one of the fundamental ones is, do I want to be augmented or not? Okay. What I mean by that is that all of us within the next 10 years have to ask ourselves that fundamental question. Do I want to become a cyborg? Term is badly chosen, but basically that's what it's going to look like. Or do I want to say just, what we define as human today, pure biology, mm. right? And that's also where you hear sometimes the term runaway AI versus us humans. 
which in my opinion is also a fallacy because it wrongly assumes that we will not be merging with technology, which we're rapidly doing already, right? Today, we have this device at the end of our hand. You know, tomorrow, for those of you who elect to do so via Neuralink or similar procedures, we will have access directly to our frontal neocortex to the vast sum of human knowledge instantly without actually having to use a device to get there. Right. Wow. So we're going to completely disintermediate the, those those types of devices. And but again, it's it's a question that we all have to ask ourselves today. It raises a large number of philosophical and ethical issues. But the day where that's happening is right in front of us. Okay. Yes, I, I accept to be augmented and understand what that means. Or no, I'm just going to stay purely biological. I don't want to say human. Because for me, the future of humanity is actually represented by this merger in technology, right? Because at the onset, technology is man-made. And the reason why I don't believe in runaway AI, again, is because it wrongly assumes that we're not going to be forming one. Uh, so that you're not going to have AI on one side and humans on the other. There mm. will be some humans that are just going to opt out. And they will be the couch potatoes. They will be the ants, mm. right? Uh, again, it's all it's our choice it's our prerogative nothing against nothing against that because i have family members who will decide to do the same thing right and i have that discussion with them as well i personally won't uh you know i'm 50 now i don't believe that i should be getting old and decrepit if i have another option uh i'd rather take you know these glasses i'm wearing right now i wasn't wearing them six months ago mm. right you know I, I don't like it right if i have another option if i can be augmented you know if you're wearing a pacemaker today you are augmented mm. right Let's face it. And once people actually, once people actually get the benefit of technology, they're very happy about it. But if you try to impose it on them, like this is something you're going to have to do at some point in time. Nobody wants to do that. Hmm. That's uh, reading these trends. I've gone down a, a wormhole of just reading. So I mean, it's so interesting that you say that as well. well what's your opinion on like? So something I realized with COVID because I've been doing Zoom meetings for like feels like the past ten years, but it's only been eight months. Um, I'm very in-person. I think that's super important. Um, obviously, we're sitting on Zoom right now, but where do you think that's going to play out then if kind of the whole transition with technology merging more with the human connection? So that's an excellent question. I think what we're seeing right now is that uh, COVID crisis is almost a year old now. And had it only been lasted for a month or two, we would have just snapped right back to yeah. where we started. But because it's been so long, so profound, it basically, what, he has, what it has done is it completely reshaped our habits and it rewired our brains. Hmm. I see colleagues who are older than me, friends, family, who are 60, 70, 80 years old that are now doing Zoom calls, Google Meet, Microsoft Teams, et cetera, et cetera, and absolutely loving it. Yeah. They would have never done that had COVID lasted for a month or two. They started in month four, five, six, and some of them are still you know, late bloomers are still starting today. So what it will do, in my opinion, coming out of this crisis at some point, we will see a massive leap in human productivity and efficiency as a result of these billions, not millions of people that had no choice but to adopt technology. Mm. And they were very reticent before at adopting this technology. And now they're just realizing, oh my God, why was I waiting this long? I was speaking to a very successful entrepreneur last week. who said, you know what, Dom? I was flying from New York to LA 
or vice versa once a week. I will never do that again. I had no idea that I could do screen share or I was afraid of it. I heard other people do it. Now I know how to do it myself. There's no reason why I would. Maybe I'll fly once every six months just to shake my buddy's hand, but yeah. on a day-to-day basis, I will never do that again. So it will dramatically impact the travel industry mm-hmm. for a very long period of time. Uh, so no crystal ball there. People will always travel, but will they really travel as much as before? I don't, I don't buy it. I don't believe so. And, you know, because you can be so much more efficient, so much more instanced by doing what we're doing right now. You know, if you actually extrapolate that at a scale of humanity as a whole, you know, I don't, for example, I don't believe that we could have ever come up with a vaccine within six to eight months, even five years ago. Yeah. Impossible. Right. And the next one is going to be hitting us. This is more like a vaccine for what's to come. Right. Mm-hmm. If we're going to get another pandemic, I think it's going to take two months mm-hmm. as a result of what we just had to go through and the extreme pain we had to suffer. Mm. Yeah, I think, yeah, these inconveniences, I think people are just slowly figuring it out. Like you mentioned your colleague uh, flying from New York to LA, you know, I used to drive around for my meetings statewide, but I drive, you know, three, four, five hours a day in the car. And now I'm like, man, I can do seven meetings in one day where I'm sitting right now. And it's so much more convenient. So. 100%. And you're 15, you're not 75. Yeah. So yeah, my dad's actually coming up on 70 and he just texted me last night. Like, Hey, I was in an eight hour zoom kind of instruction class that I was leading. And he would have usually flown to the West coast to do that and flown back the day after. So I think like you mentioned, everyone's kind of getting uh, really used to it now. Yeah. Um, so last question I want to ask, and I always like, like to end on this one with your journey and the success you've had and just kind of your experience with startups, entrepreneurship, technology, I mean, what would be that one word just to describe all that? Grit. I love it. Grit. Nice. That's probably the secret, the secret Coca-Cola ingredient right there. (laughs) Really? Okay. It's one of my favorite words as well. I love, I love that you mentioned that. I love both movies, the old one and the new one. True grit. <laughs> For sure. So, so Dom, with uh, all the stuff you guys are doing with, uh, with Unicorn and you know, your personal profile, where's just a good spot for people to learn more and connect with you and, and just in more detail? Sure. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. It's the easiest way. Dom, D-O-M, Einhorn, E-I-N-H-O-R-N. Einhorn means unicorn in German. <laughs> you can get to find out about us. The English website is unicorninkubator.com. That's unicorn with a Q, not a C. Uh, and my email is dom at unicorninkubator.com. I'm also on Facebook, Instagram, et cetera, but I use mostly LinkedIn for business. Absolutely, man. Well, hey, thank you so much for hopping on. I'll put all that in the uh, show notes just so people can connect with you. Um, but other than that, man, hope you enjoy the Saturday. I appreciate it very much, Chris. Thanks for having me on. Well, that's it, guys. Thanks again for taking the time to tune in to this week's episode of Next Level Minds. Be sure to connect with Dom. Other than that, as we always say here, your mindset is your greatest weapon for the battle of success.